Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for tonight. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. Uh, we pray that you would help us to put aside all the things that have preoccupied and distracted us during the day, and that instead that you would open our hearts to what you might desire to teach us from your word and to teach us from this book that Lewis has authored to help us understand more deeply our relationship with you and your love for us. Lord, we pray that you would bless this time and use it for your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you for being here tonight. Uh, as always, uh, we are going to start with a little guessing game about what the music of the evening is. And this is uh, something that is a little bit different from what we usually have. So uh, if you are thinking King's College, Cambridge, uh, you are not in the right uh, arena. So that was a little hint, so I'll see if I can get it to play. Yes, yes. Yes, that's not the name of it, though. Yes, Sympathy for the Devil. Yes, so you may be thinking, why in the world is he playing that? And you're just going to have to wonder for a little while. So, but we'll come back to that. That was very good. I thought that Chip Edgar was going to be the first person to get that. He was just letting other people be more vocal. Thank you for that. All right, let's say together our uh, scripture verse. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry." And we're going to come back to that part about what their itching ears want to hear. So just a word of welcome to those of you who are here in person uh, and those who are joining us online uh, for the first time. We're delighted to have you. Um, we continue to get people from very unusual places. We have some new folks from Winnipeg who are joining us online, which is a long way from Charleston and much colder. Uh, so just a couple of words about how to approach this class if you're new. Uh, you can be on the beach, which means you're just here, or you're not. Uh, you are lying around, you are basking in the sunshine, you may or may not be paying attention or reading anything. That's totally fine. If that's all you want to do, we're delighted to have you. Or you can snorkel, which means that you pay attention in the parts that you find interesting, even within a lesson. 
you may find part of tonight interesting, and then in the, the rest of it, you may want to write your grocery list. And if that's what you want to do, that's fine too. Or you can scuba dive. And if you're a scuba diver, that means you can read the handouts, you can listen to all the links that I send out, you can read uh, and go to uh, the music that we listen to. Uh, and I do want to commend to you tonight, there's a very short handout. So even if you are ever, uh, it might be worth your while, but it is Leland Riken, who's one of the great Lewis scholars who is at Wheaton, uh, writing about Paradise Lost and just why it was important to him, which is a little clue that Paradise Lost might be showing up tonight. So, uh, also, if you are not on our email list, please either sign up or if you are listening online, go ahead and Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and send me an email and we'll get you on the list for that so you get all the resources. So I do want to commend to you the email from last week because it has, we ran out of the handouts last week, so there's a Tim Keller sermon on hell, which is really, really good. And then there is a C.S. Lewis and Tim Keller uh, in dialogue, as it were, about hell, which was also really good. And also the link to the Festal Eucharist service from Mere Anglicanism, uh, which is also, if you were not there, something that will bless you uh, to watch and listen to. So one other thing about this book, uh, we're going to be stuck in chapter 9 for a little while uh, because it has so much in it. I could probably spend the rest of the year in chapter 9, uh, but I'm not going to do that. But I'm guessing it'll probably be two more weeks, so if you are reading ahead, please try to contain yourself um, and don't get too far ahead of us. All right, so we've been talking about George MacDonald because George MacDonald meets C.S. Lewis in chapter nine. And Lewis says some pretty amazing things about George MacDonald and how influential MacDonald was on his life. Listen to these. This is Lewis in his preface to the anthology that he wrote of George MacDonald quotations. I dare not say that he, George MacDonald, is never in error, but to speak plainly, I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continually close to the spirit of Christ himself. What a wonderful thing to have said about you. I've never concealed the fact that I regarded him as my master. Indeed, I fancy I've never written a book in which I did not quote from him. MacDonald is, one of the, is the greatest genius of this kind, myth-maker, whom I know. This art is in some ways more akin to music than to poetry, or at least to most poetry. It goes beyond the expression of things we've already felt. It arouses in us sensations we've never had before, never anticipated having, as though we had broken out of our normal mode of consciousness and possessed joys not promised to our birth. It gets under our skin, hits us at a level deeper than our thoughts or even our passions, troubles old certainties till all questions are reopened, and in general, shocks us more fully awake than we are for most of our lives. And he's talking here about myth not in the sense of a story that's false, but as a story that is conveying a greater truth with a capital T and uses a fictional form in order to engage our souls and our emotions. So 
when he first meets MacDonald, we get this description. And you'll remember that Lewis, right before chapter 9, he is in quite a state. Remember, he's the narrator. And he's all upset because he thinks that maybe he has been tricked and that the whole idea of being in this far green country is some kind of sick joke where he's been brought there, but it's impossible to live there, uh, that he can't walk on the grass, he can't eat. Uh, if it rains, the rain is going to go right through him like bullets, and that it's going to be awful, and that maybe the gods are just taunting him by bringing him up there. So he doesn't know what to do. He's in two minds about it, and then he meets George MacDonald. And he says, here was an old weather-beaten man, one who might have been a shepherd. Such a man as tourists think simple because, his, because he's honest and his neighbors think deep for the same reason. His eyes had the far-seeing look of one who's lived long in open, solitary places. And somehow I divined the network of wrinkles which must have surrounded them from before rebirth had washed him in immortality. My name is George, he answered, George MacDonald. Oh, I cried, then you can tell me. You, at least, will not deceive me. Then, supposing that these expressions of confidence needed some explanation, I tried trembling to tell this man all that his writings had done for me. I tried to tell how a certain frosty afternoon at Leatherhead Station when I first bought a copy of Fantasties, being then about 16 years old, had been to me what the first sight of Beatrice had been to Dante. Now, did anybody look up after last week about Beatrice and Dante? Yes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, no, not really. So Beatrice is, uh, if you read Dante's Divine Comedy, which I commend to you, um, people are scared of it, but it, is, it really is a, a wonderful work to actually read. Beatrice is the beautiful woman that Dante is enamored with, who becomes his guide through everything that is happening in the Divine Comedy. And so she is his muse, if you will. So then Lewis goes on, I started to confess how long that life had delayed in the region of imagination, merely how slowly and reluctantly I had come to admit that MacDonald's Christendom had more than an accidental connection with it. How hard I tried not to see that the true name of the quality which first met me in his books is holiness. And this, again, holiness is the most attractive thing in the world. And we have been sold a bill of goods to think holiness is boring and somehow stuck up and priggish, whereas in fact, holiness is what drew people to Jesus. It is what drew people to the saints of the church, their full commitment being set apart for the kingdom of God. So we saw last week uh, that there were some conversations going on, and the words heaven, hell, and purgatory got used. And immediately, especially for those of us who are Protestants, we hear purgatory, you're like, ah, purgatory, ah! Uh, so I just want to say, calm down. You do not need to worry. It's all going to be fine. So part of the reason it's going to be fine is that Lewis is talking about choice and time here 
He is not trying to make doctrinal statements about purgatory. And just in case you forgot, one of the things that, uh, if you've been in many classes that I've taught, you will know that Lewis's prefaces are incredibly important. He always tells you things in the preface that you really need to know to understand what he's doing in the book. And so in the preface to The Great Divorce, he says, I beg readers, that's strong language, I beg readers to remember that this is a work of systematic theology. No. I beg readers to remember that this is a theological tome. No. I beg readers to remember that this is a fantasy. And I'm sorry if I'm bursting anyone's bubble, but fantasies aren't true. Okay? So he is not trying to describe reality. He does say, it has, of course, or I intended it to have, a moral, but the transmortal conditions are solely an imaginative supposal. They are not even a guess or a speculation at what may actually await us. The last thing I wish to arouse, the last thing I wish is to arouse factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. So naturally, most people, when they read The Great Divorce, they immediately begin talking about factual curiosity about the details of the afterworld. But Lewis tells us that is not what he's about here. So he does say some things that are sort of interesting theologically, but they're not things to get hung up on. And then he uh, has this wonderful section in chapter 9 where he says, um, and this is MacDonald speaking, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. We'll ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And we're going to come back to that later on tonight. And then at the end of chapter 9, there's a, almost like speed dating with different ghosts um, that all have different little issues that he's uh, showing us something about, and we're not going to get to those tonight. So we're going to look at some key passages here, and remember, this is a fantasy. Got it? All right, here we go. Sir, said I, I'd almost forgotten it, and I have no anxiety about the answer now, though I have still a curiosity. It is about these ghosts. Do any of them stay? Can they stay? Is any real choice offered to them? How do they come to be here? And MacDonald, did you never hear of the refrigerium? A man with your advantages might have read of it in Prudentius, not to mention Jeremy Taylor. If you remember way back early on in this class, we talked about Prudentius from the fourth century and Jeremy Taylor much later um, with this idea of a supposal, not a theological argument, that maybe souls in hell got little vacations where they saw what heaven is like. And part of where that, that idea comes from is the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, um, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But remember, Lazarus is where? In the bosom of whom? 
Abraham. He's in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man, where's he? Hell. But he can see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom, and he wants to order Lazarus to come wait on him, which that has its whole set of problems of its own. But the idea is that they can see each other. And so that, that sort of idea got played with and eventually got into this idea of maybe you can have field trips. Uh, but we're not going to get hung up on that because this is a fantasy. So Lewis then says, but I don't understand. Is judgment not final? Is there really a way out of hell into heaven? McDonald, it depends on the way you're using the words. If they leave that gray town behind, it will not have been hell. To any that leaves it, it is purgatory. And perhaps you'd better not call this country heaven. Not deep heaven, you understand. Here he smiled at me. You can call it the valley of the shadow of life. And yet to those who stay here, it will have been heaven from the first. And you can call those sad streets in the town yonder the valley of the shadow of death. But to those who remain there, they will have been in hell even from the beginning. I suppose he saw that I looked puzzled. No surprise there. I looked puzzled, for presently he spoke again. And here is the key. Son, he said, ye cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. And this again, remember we talked before about Flat Stanley. Remember Flat Stanley, the little paper doll that you cut out and laminate in elementary school, and then when it's spring break, you take Flat Stanley to Niagara Falls or Panama City or wherever your family goes on vacation. And in my day, you got your Polaroid camera and had a picture taken with Flat Stanley next to you at Niagara Falls. But the idea is that Flat Stanley's experience of Niagara Falls and your experience of Niagara Falls are of a completely different order. And if they're not, we need to talk. Um, because Flat Stanley is two-dimensional. He is paper and lamination, and that's it. Whereas you have senses and corporeality and a brain and vision and all sorts of things. And what Lewis is trying to get across here is that mortals trying to understand eternity is like Flat Stanley at Niagara Falls. We don't know enough. We don't, we don't even know what we don't know. So we'll come back to that. They say if some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me but have this, and I'll take the consequences, little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And I would love to go on and on about this. Um, I'm going to allow myself just one little word here. You'll remember last week we finished with that glorious passage from the horse and his boy where Shasta is talking with Aslan. 
And at first he's terrified because he doesn't know it's Aslan. He just hears this horrible, spooky voice. And Shasta goes through the whole litany of everything that has gone wrong in his life. And the little violin is playing with all its might about how sad and terrible his life has been. And then Aslan, after Shasta's finished and basically Shasta says, isn't that terrible? And then Aslan says to him, I do not call you unfortunate. And then Aslan goes through and explains each of the terrible things that happened and puts it in context and shows that actually there was enormous blessing and joy there. And that's what he's just said here about how uh, the moving backwards, once you get that perspective, it moves backwards and transforms all of that. It's like that wonderful line in The Lord of the Rings and uh, The Return of the King where um, Frodo has awakened and Sam is there after they've destroyed the ring and Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And that's exactly the same point he's trying to get at here. So he goes on. Then those people are right who say that heaven and hell are only states of mind. MacDonald, hush, said he sternly, do not blaspheme. Hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. Because when you do that, you shut yourself off from the possibility of God, from the possibility of the kingdom of God. You isolate yourself and remove yourself from that. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. And then Lewis. But there is a real choice after death? My Roman Catholic friends would be surprised, for to them souls in purgatory are already saved. And my Protestant friends would like it no better, for they'd say the tree lies as it falls. They're both, this is MacDonald again, they're both right, maybe. Don't fash yourself with such questions. In other words, don't bother yourself with such questions. You cannot fully understand the relations of choice and time until you are beyond both. And you were not brought here to study such curiosities. What concerns you is the nature of the choice itself, and that you can watch them making. And this is Lewis through the story telling us he's not trying to teach us about purgatory and exactly what happens. What he's trying to teach us about is choice and what we choose to embrace and what we choose to love and whom we choose to love and how that relates to our relationship with God. So hang in there with us. So uh, then uh, McDonald goes on, Milton, not Milton Friedman, the economist, John Milton, Paradise Lost, okay? Milton was right, said my teacher, the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There's always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. 
You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. Ye call it the sulks. Then is no one lost through mere sensuality? Some are, no doubt. The sensualist begins by pursuing a real pleasure, though a small one. His sin is the less. But the time comes on when the pleasure becomes less and less and the craving fiercer and fiercer. And though he knows that joy can never come that way, yet he prefers to joy the mere fondling of unappeasable lust and would not have it taken from him. He'd fight to the death to keep it. And this is very much what you see going on in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Edmund and the Turkish Delight. Uh, he thinks it's so great, but then once he becomes addicted to it, he wants it so much that he endures being put in a prison and chained to the wall, still hoping that somehow he's going to get just a taste of this. And from any rational point of view, it's crazy. It's crazy, but what happens is the succession of choices shapes your heart in the same way that you see all through Scripture, this terrible phrase that shows up in two different ways, um, their hearts were hardened or God gave them over. Some of the most frightening language in Scripture, but it is that whole idea that the more that you choose against God, eventually you may get to the place where that's all you can do. So MacDonald again. Do you think so, said the teacher with a piercing glass, glance. It is nearer to such as you than you think. There have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ, man. You see it in smaller matters. Did you never know a lover of books that with all his first editions and signed copies had lost the power to read them? Or an organizer of charities that had lost all love for the poor? It is the subtlest of all the snares. And the little backstory to that that I left out is that MacDonald is challenging Lewis that this may be the snare that he needs to watch out for. So, of course, Lewis, the apologist, tried to teach people about God and about the Christian faith. Um, it's very much like that whole section in Revelation, this I have against you, that you have lost your first love. And so this idea of holding on to the love of God and following Jesus, not just knowing about him. So right after uh, McDonald's poked him a little bit, back to Lewis, moved by a desire to change the subject, uh, I asked why the solid people, since they were full of love, did not go down into hell to rescue the ghost. Why were they then content simply to meet them on the plain? One would have expected a more militant charity, a more militant love. You will understand that better, perhaps, before you go, he said. In the meantime, I must tell you, they have come further for the sake of the ghost than you can understand. Every one of us 
lives only to journey further and further into the mountains. Remember, that is where you get closer and closer to the presence of God. And it's right there before them. And these solid, bright spirits, that's what they live for, to move into that presence. And yet, each one of us has interrupted that journey and retraced immeasurable distances to come down today on the mere chance of saving some ghosts. Of course, it is also a joy to do so, but you cannot blame us for that. And it would be no use to come further, even if it were possible. The same would do no good if they made themselves mad to help madmen. There are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. And you'll remember, we talked a little bit about Genesis 3 and the fall last time. And what does Satan tell Eve will happen if she eats the apple. You will be like God. You will know good from evil. You'll be like God. And really what it means is you will be God in your own mind. You will be in charge. You won't be under God anymore. You will be in charge. Uh, And that is the whole thing that Lewis is talking about here. That's the ancient battle of the human will that doesn't want to submit to God and wants to say, I am the captain of my soul. I don't want to have anything to do with you, God. And basically, this whole idea that he's getting across in this language about um, those who say to God, thy will be done, i.e., those who've given their hearts and lives to Jesus, or those who say, I'm the captain of my soul. I want nothing to do with you. God says, thy will be done. You have it your way. And that that is the one thing that God will not force on anyone. So uh, that's part of what he's trying to get at here. So there are a couple of key themes here. So the first one is that God's time is not our time, and it is beyond our ability to comprehend. And if this part kind of makes your head spin and you get confused, don't worry about it, just skip it, don't think about it. Um, This is very much like there's an analogous passage in Mere Christianity, those of you who studied that uh, in class, where Lewis is trying to talk about time and dimensions. And for some people, they read that and their eyes glaze over and roll back in their heads and they fall over as if dead. Uh, And if that's you, don't worry about it. Um, it, is, it is not a key aspect of the Christian faith. But what Lewis is trying to do is to explain how something's beyond our comprehension might, remember this is a supposal and a fantasy, that there might be some aspects that we can get a little bit of a hold on. So uh, as Lewis uh, has himself posed the question, Sir, said I, I'd almost forgotten it, and I have no anxiety about the answer now, though I have still curiosity. It's about these ghosts. Do any of them stay? Can they stay? Is any real choice offered to them? But I don't understand. Is judgment not final? Is there really a way out of hell and to heaven? 
and then McDonald. It depends on the way you're using the words. And part of what I want to make clear here is that the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of the formularies of the Anglican Church and of Protestantism in general, is that Christ died once for our sins on the cross, and that the shed blood of Jesus is the only thing that saves us from our sins. And that if you are actually in hell, in the fullness of what that means, because you have rejected consciously Jesus Christ, you can't change your mind once you're there and suddenly flit up to heaven. So that, that is where we are coming from doctrinally. But what Lewis is trying to play with here, and for some people this is helpful and for some people it's not. If it's not helpful, just throw it to the side or throw it out like a dog bone um, to someone else that finds it helpful. Part of what he's thinking about is that if you are outside of our time, we live in uh, this chronological sequential time. God lives in time that is beyond that. He created time. He is outside of it. So he sees all time happening at once. It's like watching a model train at Charleston Place. You can be up on that stair. You can see the whole thing and know where it's going. Um, and that God's time is like that. And so when you see it that way, the whole understanding of uh, what happens in terms of when does the, the blood of Christ take effect to save you, he's playing with that a little bit. But don't worry about it if it puzzles you or makes you confused. The point that he's trying to get across is that choices matter. Choices matter. Your attitude toward God in this life matters eternally. And that whole idea about hardening your heart and God giving people over is something that is very real. And so, but the main point is this last sentence, son, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. In other words, you can have at it trying to think about these things, you can wrestle with them, but you're not really going to understand it and we need to accept what the scriptures teach us by faith. And then just a reminder about God's time from scripture, from 2 Peter, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. And then Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father is fixed by his own authority. And then from Ecclesiastes, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There are things that are holy mysteries and the things of God, and we know God's plan of salvation, and that is the thing that is most important. So the second thing that is really important is that heaven is solid and real. Heaven is not a fantasy. Heaven is not a supposal. It is a real, solid place, um, and it is uh, the place that we are made for. It is the country that we are made for where our citizenship is. So he says this, hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word, and every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end 
hell. So remember that mind that is like the spirit of the age that we live in. There is no God. I am the definer of my own truth. I speak my own truth. There is no absolute truth. There is no meaning and purpose. There is no afterlife. I am totally in charge of who I am and defining myself. That's what Lewis is talking about here. That's a state of mind, but that state of mind makes it impossible for you to come into a loving, faithful relationship with Jesus Christ, absent the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit into your life to soften that hard heart. And then he goes on to say, heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. And Hebrews is a great book to read about this. If you want to read about heaven, read Hebrews, and then read Revelation 21, and it will bless you. But a few things from Hebrews. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. That's talking about something that's real, not something that's a fantasy or a state of mind. That is the place that is more real than where we are now. Thirdly, Lewis is not interested in teaching about the timing and mechanics of how salvation and atonement works, but in the nature and importance of choice. And that's why he has McDonald say, they're both right you know, when, he's, when Lewis is saying, well, both the Catholics and the Protestants would be upset about this idea. They think that the choice of where you're going Um, is a choice that happens in this life and you don't get second chances later. And McDonald says, well, they may both be right about that. Um, But he says, don't fash yourself. Well, fash is not really a word that we use. Uh, But basically, don't trouble yourself. Don't worry about it. uh, Because what he wants to focus on is this idea of the nature of choice and watching what these ghosts do because this is where Lewis is trying to instruct us. So the fourth, uh, and we're gonna see more and more of this in the story, we cannot hold on to anything of this world if we hope to be saved. We cannot hold on to anything of this world if we hope to be saved. It's just like that old line from the hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling that if we think we can bring something with us or bring this habit or bring this one thing we really don't want to give up, whatever it might be, you can't go into heaven holding on to things from this world. So uh, McDonald puts it this way, the choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. 
there is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. And then as scripture says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Then St. Paul, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage or filthy rags that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. If you are crucified, you're not taking anything with you. You're not holding on to anything. All you have is that faith in the cross of Jesus. And then this parable of Lazarus and the rich man, um, I just want to read this again because I think it's instructive, um, and I'm sure this was on Lewis's mind while he's writing this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing, there's that longing word, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So the rich man called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The rich man answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Well, part of what's going on here is you see how the rich man, used to ordering people around in his life, used to um, having people wait on him, is still acting that way as he's calling out for help from Father Abraham. And you don't see, does the rich man say, oh, Father Abraham, I see now how wrong I was, how cold my heart was, how hardened my heart was, how I was given over to selfishness and pride and avaricious worship of wealth. I'm so sorry, I repent of these things. Could I please 
come and have just a sip of water. No, there's nothing like that. It's, oh, there's Lazarus up there. He's, he's a servant. He's not worth much. He's not doing anything worthwhile. Set him loose to come bring me some water down here and do it quick. What Lewis is trying to show us is exactly what Jesus is illustrating in this parable. And remember, Jesus wrote this story. Jesus is trying to teach us something, and he chooses this exact story to teach it to us. And part of it is that our selfishness and pride and all those things, when we rely on ourselves and think we are king of the universe and we don't want to rely on God or listen to his word, then ultimately God gives us over to that. So you may have noticed, if you are a student of Paradise Lost, that there are references to Paradise Lost all over this chapter. And you might also know, if you're a Rolling Stones fan, that the Sympathy for the Devil song uh, that the Rolling Stones wrote has a lot to do with the portrayal of Satan in Paradise Lost. Uh, you'll remember in, well, if you're of a certain age where you listen to the song, like I did, um, you'll remember he says, pleased to meet you, and then he talks about guessing his name, and then he talks about, I'm a man of wealth and taste, as if that is what mattered. And that is Satan um, putting on the dog, as it were. So listen to this little dialogue, or really more of a monologue, when Satan has just been thrown out of heaven. This is what he says. Is this the region, this the soil, the climb, said then the lost archangel Satan, this the seat that we must change for heaven, this mournful gloom for that celestial light? Be it so, since he who now is sovereign can dispose and bid what shall be right, farthest from him is best, whom reason hath equaled, force hath made supreme above his equals. Farewell, happy fields where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors, hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where, if I be still the same, and what I should be, all but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here at least we shall be free, the Almighty hath not built here for his envy, will not drive us hence. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. But wherefore let us we then our faithful friends, the associates and co-partners of our loss, lie thus astonished on the oblivious pool and call them not to share with us their part in this unhappy mansion, or once more with rallied arms to try what may be yet regained in heaven or what more lost in hell. And what you see here is the ultimate rebellion against God, saying, basically, I thumb my nose at you, God. I couldn't care less about you. I'm setting myself up as king of my own dominion, and I don't want any part of you. I am going to literally glory 
and being in hell. I'm going to glory in my shame. If you want a good example of this, just watch the clip from the Grammy Awards that just happened. It's unbelievable. Uh, but it could, it could be an enactment almost of what we just read here. It is uh, profoundly disturbing. But pride, Lewis says uh, in multiple books, pride is the heart of original sin. An unfettered pride, pride that you don't, you let it have its full head, that pride will lead you to hell. So, fifthly, studying about working for Christ is not the same as knowing him. Uh, there have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself, as if the good Lord had nothing to do but exist. There have been some who were so occupied in spreading Christianity that they never gave a thought to Christ. Man, you see it in smaller matters. Did you ever know a lover of books that with all his first editions and signed copies had lost the power to read them, or an organizer of charities that had lost all love for the poor? It is the subtlest of snares. And then from Matthew, Jesus speaking, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. And then the flip side of that, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is such a word, I think, for those of us who are Christians, to not get so caught up in trying to know about that we forget to know. And to remember that worship and following Jesus is at the heart of the Christian faith. And knowledge is great. We are called upon to love God with our mind. But remember, it's heart, soul, mind, and strength. And heart and soul come first. And so what we don't ever want to do is settle for a dry intellectual knowledge. This is the whole idea of why there's free will in the world. Uh, if God had made salvation a thing that he forced on people, it would be just as if you were all alone and you were tired of being alone and you had magical powers so you could make a life-sized humanoid doll. And that doll was very attractive and interesting, and whenever you pushed a button, it would say, I love you. I think you are the greatest person in the world. Well, that might satisfy you for a little while, but eventually you would realize that the doll is programmed to say that because of the button, and that it's not real, and that it's not really love. And so without the possibility to refuse to love, there can be no real love. And that was the risk that God took in creation, and he thought it was worth it, and he thought it was worth it to save the world from that free will by sending Jesus to die on the cross so that we might be able to choose through God's providence and the work of the Holy Spirit to come back to him, to be made whole, to regain that image of God that we were made in. So there are only two kinds of people in the end. 
those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. From Hebrews again. For it is impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And then Jesus and Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount in the New Living Translation, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. And this is the idea that all truth, all beauty, all goodness derives from God and that the soul and person who is earnestly seeking after God and wanting to know what is true will end up at the foot of the cross in the truth of the gospel. And that is the way that God has made things so that everything points to him. And that as we follow these pointers, we will be drawn more and more to God. But what Lewis is trying to get across in this chapter without getting us hung up on any of these things about the sequence of choices in afterlife and purgatory. What he's trying to get us to acknowledge is that it matters who we follow. It matters what our faith is. It matters in whom our faith is most supremely. So we live in a culture that is battering on us all the time that our faith is to be in ourselves. Our faith is to believe that our own truth Our own experience is more important than anything else in the world. But the kingdom of God is absolutely in opposition to that because what it says is that we will find our real self when we come into relationship with Christ. So that little verse that has so much to do with what we've been talking about tonight, uh, Lewis talking again, I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we confess to you how consumed we can be with pride and self-importance and thinking that we are the captain of our soul, we are the center of the universe, they understand you don't really know what we've been going through. But Lord, we know the truth of your word, the fact that you have known us from before we were even breathing, that you knew us when we were in our mother's womb, that you know us and that you have destined and made us for your glory. And Lord, that we find the fullness of what it means to be human when we come into relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, and his blood shed on the cross. 
And that as we do that, the glory and beauty of the cross, which is foolishness to the world, becomes true and our hearts are turned to worship you and the desire of our heart comes to be to dwell in your house forever. Lord, we pray that you would fire our hearts with love for you, that we would not be led astray by Satan's wanting to tempt us to pride, to trust in ourselves, but that instead we would be drawn and drawn by the beauty of your amazing grace. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.